Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. How awesome is it to be at church this morning? Anybody have to drive in a little bit of snow? Yeah? Aren't you glad? Enjoyable moment. Hopefully uh, it'll be just fine on your way out. Don't look out the windows. We, uh, AJ did a great job of uh, encouraging you to be at Christmas Eve. Uh, I I just want to double down on that and encourage you to uh, get your tickets. They may be electronic tickets. Some of you are going to be bothered by the fact that you don't have paper. You can print stuff if you want, carry it with you. Uh, We just want to make sure that you have access and can get in there. And, uh, and I wanted to say a, a couple of things. Are you thankful for the creativity of the team to be able to uh, do worship like this this morning? That same creative team is, has been working so hard to make Christmas at the Elsinore something special. And uh, I really do believe it'll be something uh, that you'll enjoy and remember for not just this year, but for many seasons. Also, in this room, Christmas Day, we're going to have a service so 10 o'clock in here on Christmas Day, and I know uh, for a lot of churches, uh, they're going to do something Christmas Eve and then not be uh, having church on Christmas Day. Christmas Day, we will have church in here. Just look on your calendars. It's the appropriate day, the 25th, uh, to have church in here. It's on Sunday. Um, some have asked why we would do that. Um, here's the thing. I, I listened to a song on the radio, which I rarely do. The other day, but it said, it's so busy, I'm uh, buying gifts and putting stuff under the tree, uh, trying to get my returns in order, uh, buying stuff I know that people can easily return. It says, it's such a hectic time of year, it's unfortunate that Jesus was born at Christmas. (laughs) I want you to remember that the reason that all the hustle and bustle and everything is going on is that Jesus, our Savior, was born. So on that morning, we're going to take time, and we're going, to, we're going to set the room up a lot like we do for our prayer times. So there will be some rugs and places for our families. Uh, on the sides, we're going to open up the doors. We're going to create spillways. It'll be a family atmosphere. Um, but we're going to celebrate our Savior Christmas Day here for those uh, who want to make time. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be jammed in here, all right? Uh, there will be some kids with candy cane in their hair and in their jammies, and we love it. The entire family is going to be inside. We're going to have uh, everyone, all ages, in the room together. It'll be a family Christmas, but we're encouraging you to be here if you can. Uh, This morning, not a Christmas message. Hebrews 6, 4, uh, for those of you who grew up in the church reading your Bibles, this is one of the most contested pieces of biblical real estate in all of the scriptures. If you are a visitor here today, I am sorry. (laughs) This is where, uh, as part of a a church that just goes through the scriptures, uh, we try not to skip any trouble passages. Uh, This is a passage, it's the final one before we head into our uh, prepared Christmas uh, season messages, Uh, but we thought it was an important one to tackle before we head into the new year. It's a warning passage. Uh, It is a passage that is filled with some technical, um, you have to bring attention to the details. 
Uh, This message is a little bit more broccoli, a little less sweets. But I do believe there's a warning here that comes with a blessing for those who respond. But also a serious concern for those who do not. And this is the most appropriate time of year to take the warning seriously. I have a question just to help us frame our mind. Is it possible for you to read a statement and have your interpretation be both accurate and miss the point? Is that possible? I just want you to see a couple pictures of somebody who did that. It says here, touch with only your eyes. (laughs) Having a wonky eye myself and having had surgeries, that makes me super nervous. So uh, yeah, another guy here, it says hug left curb when leaving. Success. We have another uh, moment right here. It says, keep your iPhones and your valuables under watch. So he did. His iPhone and his valuables are underneath his watch. Another one here, senior parking. That's uh, too literal, folks. This last one's super interesting to us. Keep Portland weird. This guy is successful. It's actually Darth Vader on a unicycle blowing bagpipes of fire. How could this be both accurate and miss the point? The original um, theme there, Keep Portland Weird, came in 2003. It was actually intended to inspire success in small businesses in Portland. But the weirdness of Portland has actually caused small business owners to be super afraid. Imagine this guy buying a donut in your shop. Accurate interpretation, but might also miss the point. There are people who will read the passage that we are about to read today, and they will be able to tell you how to make sense of this passage in English to a modern-day audience. They're going to be reading it with this uh, day and age in mind, with this current season in mind. Read the passage. They'll be able to make sense of it verbally in your own culture, but they might miss the point of the passage. And by arguing over this troubling section of verses we're about to read, we actually miss the intended point that the author is making. In fact, we pull it out and make such a hash of it that it actually doesn't make sense in the book of Hebrews at all. It feels like he just launches into some weird excursus and then comes back into his regular flow of thought when we interpret it the way that we classically interpret it. So we're just going to walk through this passage this morning. We're going to take a look at a passage that gives us a warning about something real, I believe, that believers should be concerned about. And we're going to see what the author was hoping to inspire. I believe that we can walk away not only challenged, but also confirmed in our faith. You guys ready for it? Just a reminder, as we get ready to read, we're going to be in our uh, Bibles. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we're starting, verse 11. We're going to end in Hebrews 6, verse 12. Turn there. But a reminder, this book is written to believers. And all the way through, there's no indication that he changes his audience. He doesn't flip away from believers to some secondary audience inside. Uh, The reason that I believe that that is a, a, a definite case is we have probably the most sophisticated language use in all of the New Testament used in the book of Hebrews. A good author 
knows how to tell you what he is intending to accomplish. Speaking specifically to a group of people using their translation of scripture, their idioms, their stories. He's consistent all the way through the book. He's speaking to one group of people and as he challenges them and also warns them, he's warning the exact same group of people. Trying to get them at the very end to stay faithful to Christ and stay encouraged. It's a reminder in this book that there is nothing that compares with Jesus. That's our title that we've used, Incomparable. Knowing him should change your life. Amen? So let's stand and read Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 12. And scripture says this. We have a great deal to say about this. Uh, And in particular there, he's referring to talking about Jesus as our high priest earlier in the chapter. A great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain. Listen to this. Since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they were crucifying the son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks in the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation, useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dear beloved, in your case, we are confident of things that are better that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will become imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. Do you believe that there's something in there for you today? There is. You may be seated. Father, I just ask as we look at this passage that you would bring clarity. You'd help us to see the dire warning that's there. There are words that are used in this passage that are trigger words. They create concerns for us. They may overwhelm us. And yet, Father, uh, you intend for this passage at the end to confirm our faith, spur us away from laziness, and be those who see goodness on this side of heaven. I pray, Father, that you would help us 
to be able to see the reason for this passage being written, to follow its contours, be able to respond to what it is challenging us to think about. Father, I pray we would walk away not just challenged, but convinced that you care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm just going to follow a simple outline this morning that I use for any time that I come to a troubling passage. And instead of giving you three points and a poem, I want to help you just walk through the passage with me. Let's take a look at some of the key concerns and draw the conclusion that I think that the author intends. Keys in interpreting tough passages, there are four. Uh, We're going to look at the context this morning, what the author's flow of thought in the book as a whole, and the passage that's around the problem text. So in this passage, what's his flow of thought? And in the book around it, what is his flow of thought? Does it make sense? Consistency. Does the conclusion that I am coming to when I read this passage require multiple backflips in order to land its point, or does it make sense on its own? So whatever conclusion I come to, remember, God intended for you to read Scripture and for it to be light, not darkness. He did not write things so that you'd be tied up in knots and overwhelmed and worried. He wrote things so that you would be able to see clearly and walk forward and know his will. Context, consistency, and then culture. What would the original audience, Hebrews, early church believers, what would they have assumed or heard? Remember, he's using their idioms. He's speaking to them in their storylines. How would they have heard it? And finally, the conclusion. What's the point the author thinks he has made? So we're just going to walk through those four things. We're going to have to do it quickly. I put some of the the extent of my notes on the back of the notes that you can receive as you were coming in. Uh, I'm not hoping that you'll just read super fast as we blast through this. We don't have enough time to do this class form, but this is uh, one of those mornings where both teaching and preaching is required. We're going to look at context first, and that is the flow of thought that we see starting here in chapter 5, verse 11. He says at the very beginning, we have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain. Why? Because you've become too lazy to understand. In fact, he begins and ends this little section where he is identifying a problem with the idea of laziness. Something about the laziness of the individuals is involved. 5, 11 through 14, literally you become too lazy, and he uses an implication here. Laziness means you are not pushing on to maturity. Has anybody here ever heard something and ignored it? Yeah? You ever heard something from a, a, do your kids ever listen to you but not really listen? Can they tell you exactly what you said even as they are running the opposite direction? That's not maturity, in our homes, that's a lack of maturity. If you actually hear what your husband or wife has said and then pretend that you did not hear them, screaming for help as the water is flowing out of a tub or the dog has stepped in something and is rolling around in the living room, well, just let them handle it. You will be accountable later. And it won't be fun. 5.11 through 14 says, if you don't press on to maturity... This is a concern. Six, one through four then, he says this, super important. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. By the way, we could spend, 
in just verses one through three, the whole entire morning talking about all of these terms. But he literally says, don't waste time on all these terms. You should already know about them. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. And some of these things are amazing. He says, repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Wouldn't it be awesome if just the elementary things like that, we just knew those the moment that we came into church? But there might be some phrases in there you're reading and saying, well, if that's elementary, what am I? He says, this is remedial faith. By the way, just notice this. Three different segments there. Two different ideas for at the very beginning of faith in the past. Two different ideas for what you're currently walking through. And two different ideas for what is happening in the future. He talks about your faith as a believer and saying, there was something that got you in the door. There's something that's happening right now. And there's something that you're still waiting to see. And all of these things should be basics. He says, but you spend so much time learning that you are not doing any doing. Maturity is applying what you believe. One author has said that most of us have been educated far beyond our obedience. We don't obey to the level that we know. This is what the author is saying here. Six, four through six, you're in danger. He gives us some strong wording here and we can see from the way that the author speaks that there is something urgent to him and he's trying to highlight this for him. He's trying to press his point home. We'll just sum that up. Circle that section in four through six says there is danger here. And this is the place where we could possibly interpret it wrong and miss the point of the passage. He then gives us an illustration that he thinks, remember the author of this, thinks that this illustration flows right out of the statement that he just made. The illustration of a field that receives rain. Two different kinds of fruit are produced. And the owner is looking at that field, not whether or not he wants to sell the field or get rid of the field, but he's looking at the produce of that field and whether or not it pleases him. And he has to make a decision with that field. What is he going to do with it? Verses 9 through 11, the author here says, you're not currently in danger. And he proves this with their works. Something that we conclude needs to flow from the danger through the illustration into that statement. And then 612, you must heed the warning, don't be lazy. He says all of this in summary, verse 12, so that you won't become lazy, but will become imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. There's the context. Consistency. What is the conclusion that we make, especially with this passage? It says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm. They're re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. What makes sense of that passage without forcing us to do backflips? I read a bunch of different authors this last week and um, in the process of preparing for this, I have been living underneath the assumption that there are really four strong uh, understandings of this passage. There are actually 16 different understandings of this passage. Just a side note, if you get to a place in scripture and there are 16 different 
opinions and good, solid Bible teachers stand behind each one of them, you might be at a problem passage. Here is a problem passage. What makes the most sense in this passage? Now, uh, that said, I want you to hear me. It may be possible that my conclusion this morning is not one that you're settling into. I want you to hear this very clearly. I am not the Pope. I'm not speaking ex cathedra here. You don't have to believe my view in order to be saved. Can you hear me? We can have different views in a problem passage as long as we're chasing after the Lord. Amen? In some of these, we have to work out what we are seeing. Wrap our minds around that. Do not anathematize some friend of yours because they have a different view on a problem passage. Maybe you could just write that down and have that be the theme for this morning. Good people have differing opinions on certain passages of scripture and they're still saved and can still be in fellowship. Consistency, four views. First one, this is the classic understanding coming into it of the Arminians and that is a loss of salvation view. That view is that a true believer stumbles to the point that they let go of the faith and they cannot return again. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. And he gives this whole entire picture here. Uh, Arminius believed that all of these descriptions are of a believer. By the way, so did Luther. One of the few things they agreed on. If you're aware of that historical debate between those two men where they call each other out. Loss of salvation view. Arminius believes that you actually can lose your salvation. He says that there is something that a believer does in this passage that causes them to become apostate. They literally see the goodness of God. They taste everything, all the benefits of the kingdom that is about to come. And they make some decision that causes them to walk away from their faith. Those who have fallen away, it is impossible to renew to repentance. They would say, at this point, you are lost. There's a couple of key questions that we need to ask of that position, and that is, if the point of the book is to inspire faithfulness, and these people have become too lazy to listen or move forward, at what point does that laziness equal apostasy? How can you know if you've gone too far? I just want to show of hands in here, for those of you who have not sinned, okay, Since being saved, real quick. No one? Okay, well, I can't finish the question. We all sin post-salvation. How much sin does God endure before he apostatizes you? At what point is your sin so flagrant that God says, you know what, I was with you up until you cheated on the IRS, but today you shouted at the dog, it's too much. Jesus could not cover that. Genuinely, at what point do little sins become big sins or do big sins write you off? I believe this is an important question for one reason. I have talked to people, a very close friend who was following the Lord, did horrible things in his life, in his marriage, in his daily existence. And came back to me later and said, I want so badly to come back to Christ, but I've read this passage and I know that he will not receive me. I can't come back. His conviction in reading this 
was that he had sinned and been rejected. Do you believe that's true? Is it really true that a believer who backslides cannot be saved? The, The statement that is made that then they try to back up and undo is that you cannot be saved if you have sinned and rejected the Lord. And yet everyone I know that holds that view will tell you from other places in Scripture, no, God is gracious and is always willing to forgive. So in their theology, they undo the warning. A second view, though, that's very popular is the test of genuineness view, classic Reformed view. This passage is describing those who profess faith but are really unbelievers. They were professors, not possessors of salvation. And that means that through the course of their life, through the course of everything that they are doing, they actually are revealed as apostates. It's revealed that you actually never really believed in God. So it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. And uh, it, it does take into account that you're speaking to Hebrews. But the only correlation that they make is not everybody that came out of Egypt believed in God. I would contend that the whole point of the stories from the beginning is that even when God does amazing things, man will still sin. Amen? You can see the goodness of God. You can see that he is worthy of following. You can see all of these things and still step out the door and make a selfish choice. But in the test of genuineness, as you go through your life, you cannot know if anybody is saved until they die victorious, still claiming faith. They're revealed as apostates. A couple of key questions for that view. How is it that the author can be convinced of better things that accompany salvation? Um, Verse nine, even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and pertain to salvation. How is that possible? You can't really know that anybody is saved under this view because they might make a decision tomorrow that shows that everything that they've been doing is an act or a hope or a wish. They kind of like Jesus, but they don't like him enough. How is it possible that the author can be convinced if he cannot know anyone's saved till they die? The author says God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. In this view, are works necessary? By the way, All the way through scriptures, the classic Christian view is that you are saved by faith, by grace. Amen? Amen. Faith, not works, lest any man should boast. How can apostate taste the heavenly gift and share in the Holy Spirit? I do not think that's possible. It's not used anywhere else in scripture in that way. This is speaking of believers. The statement that is made that then has to be undone in your theology is that you can't know if anybody is really saved. And yet we tell people on a regular basis that they can be sure of their salvation. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are saved. Amen? I want you to hear this this morning. All that you need to do is believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in all of your messes, mistakes, blunders, Lack of follow through, Jesus Christ is faithful even when we are not. Amen? Amen. Test of genuineness view. There's a third view that's very popular. It's called the hypothetical view. By the way, this is the one that I was taught um, both in Bible school and in seminary. 
that this passage is presenting a hypothetical case describing a scary but impossible scenario. It's a warning without bite meant to inspire devotion. Okay? This is a lot like telling somebody that you love, I'm going to kill you if you don't stop that. (laughs) Hypothetical, not real. It focuses on, in many translations, the word if they fall away. But literally, in this view, these are people that are acting like apostates, and he wants to take a swipe at them verbally to push them back and make them act right. The key question we have is, if this is only hypothetical, why give a warning at all? Why spend all of this space here? After talking about a high priest who is able to meet our needs and what Jesus Christ can do, and going back into that flow of thought in the next chapters, that we need Christ in order to walk this life right, Why all the bluster? The statement that's made that has to be undone is that this is just hypothetical when there's no indication in the text at all that he's giving you a hypothetical case. This is a sophisticated author. It's not hypothetical. The third or the fourth and final one that I'd have you consider this morning, out of all the 16, fourth most popular view and one I believe that has the most merit is the loss of rewards. This passage is warning lazy believers that they can sin in such a way that they irrevocably scar their life. That what they are doing is living in such a way that they must now live the rest of their days under plan B. In the process, they lose the opportunity to serve or blessings of faithfulness or perhaps even their life. Put next to that 1 John 5. In addition, there's the loss of future rewards. 1 Corinthians 3. This laziness leads to a lack of inheritance or a loss of blessing. There is something actually that you lose forever in your opportunity. The key question, though, that we have to answer for this is, can a child of God be called cursed or live under a curse or close to being burned? In what way would this be true? This is where we turn to the culture. Are we doing okay? Like I said, broccoli this morning, not Christmas candy, okay? Now let's walk this forward. What would that early audience have heard, the culture? Just to set us up for this, there are ways, idioms that we hear or phrases that we'll speak, and we might be able to work out a little bit of how that culture got to that conclusion, but they nonetheless intrigue us. Uh, For Hotels.com, there was a series of... uh, advertisements uh, to help them be able to show that you might not be in your home country. In Poland, this is the way to say this is not my problem. It's not my circus. These are not my monkeys. You can see in that phrasing how they would get to this is not my problem, right? How about this one? Uh, If you feed the donkey sponge cake, right? So if you're over there and they say, hey, he's just feeding the donkey sponge cake, that's actually giving really good treatment to somebody who doesn't need it. Doesn't say doesn't deserve it. But you're actually feeding the donkey sponge cake. Hey, the donkey's fine, okay? But they're over there giving kid glove treatment, kindness to somebody who really doesn't need it. That's an interesting Portuguese one. How about this? To have a wide face, just pause right there and say, if you were to look at somebody in the audience, just turn to them and say, man, you have a wide face. (laughs) You guys are hesitant right now, aren't you? (laughs) Anyone afraid you're about to get slapped? This means to have many friends in that culture. 
To look at them and say you have a wide face, literally, you are approachable. You are available. That's the idea. But if we were to walk around downtown Salem and say you have a wide face, you're not going to make many friends. It's going to be the opposite. Last one. This is intriguing. Into the mouth of a wolf. An Italian. Leave it to the Italians to come up with this way to bless somebody, right? It means good luck. Hey, may you go into the mouth of the wolf. <laughs> that sounds a lot like, what's the matter for you? You know, give me any attention. Cultural idioms. If you are in that culture, there may be a way to make sense of it. But you have to make sure that you're paying attention to the culture and listening with those ears. Let's listen with Hebrew ears as we go through this passage. Remember, the Hebrews were the intended audience. All the way through, the author has been pulling illustrations out of the Old Testament text and saying, this is what I'm trying to apply to you and remind you that there are, even though you are in Christ, there are still some pitfalls today. Numbers 14, man, we're out of time. We're going to go through this quickly. Numbers 14 says this. The uh, Lord is working with Israel. They have come up to the land. They're right at the edge. So they've been freed from Egypt. They come through all of their trials. They see that God is good, that he's made a judgment on false gods and all of these things. But they come up to the door of the land and Israel sees that there are giants there. Now remember, God has conquered every single problem everywhere that they've gone. But they come up to the edge of the land and he sees, they see that there are giants there and they say, it's impossible. We cannot make it. 14.1 says, and the whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept that night and the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. And it says that God said, that's enough. Moses, verse 5, falls on his face in front of the whole assembly and says, please, don't do this. And the assembly gathers together, and they're going to stone him and say, why are you bringing us to this place? And all of a sudden, God's brightness, his holiness, shows up in the temple, in the tabernacle. While the whole community threatened to stone them, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me? Despite all of the signs that I performed among them, I'll strike them with a plague and destroy them. I'll make you greater and mightier. And Moses replies to the Lord, the Egyptians are going to hear about this God. He basically argues with him. He says, look, we've already done all the work. And plus, I don't want to be the one that starts all over. I, I want you to use these people. He is a mediator. He's a priest on behalf of the people saying, Lord, will you please accept them? Will you please forgive them? So now may my Lord's power be magnified just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger. Verse 18, abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of these people. Verse 20, and the Lord responded, you need to hear this. I have pardoned them as you requested. Okay, he's pardoned them. We're back on, right? Yet as I live, and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt in the wilderness and have tested me these 10 times. By the way, 10 plagues in Egypt and then 10 times Israel rebels all the way up to this moment. And they did not obey me. 
None of them will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. He actually goes on to say, but since you said that your children are in trouble, that you're going to have to defend your children, I'm actually going to bring your kids in, and I'm going to be the same great God to them. I'm going to let them see the goodness of the land. I'm going to win all the victories for them. And you're going to see from the other side that I keep my promises. Well, a bunch of them hear God and they believe him. Very end of the chapter, Moses reported all these words to the Israelites, 39. The people were overcome with grief. So they got up early the next morning and went up to the ridge of the hill saying, let's go back to the place the Lord promised. Now, this, by the way, let's go back, is the formal way to say, let's repent. We had repented, so we saw God. We get to the edge of the land. Then we turn around and repent of following God. And then we repent and come back and try to go back into the land. What happens to them? Let's go to the place the Lord promised. But Moses responded, why are you going against the Lord's command again? It won't succeed. This only succeeds if he's with you. But this blessing, even though you are pardoned, this blessing you are about to receive, you won't receive. They get routed. This becomes a storyline all the rest of the way through. Yeah, I believe the author of Hebrews is grabbing onto this illustration and taking them through it and saying, do you know that in this day and age, even though we are under Christ, it is actually possible still to sin and lose plan A in your life. I left a little trail there for you. Um, and for those who are interested, Arnold uh, Frutenbaum, you're going to have a hard time forgetting that name. Frutenbaum has actually five ways that you can translate this uh, with those idioms in there so that you can see that the flow of thought takes you back to that Israelite moment. Let me just say it this way. It is impossible to be saved, then become unsaved, and then become resaved again without any consequences. He says, in three or four different ways, he is saying, everything that you do when you go forward, you're still doing as a child of God. You can't follow the Lord and then say, oh, you know what, I'm gonna reject him for a little while because I wanna go do these other things, but I'll come back and I'll follow him at the end. You can't come back to that plan A without consequences. Everything that you just did as a rejecting believer has consequences. You're still his child. Just like you love your kids, and everything that they do, they do as a family member. There are some things that they do that you won't be happy with. This is the warning that's here. The conclusion that the author is trying to make, the point that he's trying to make is, if you do not press forward, you will fall away. 1938, there was a hurricane uh, monstrous proportions that struck the East Coast. Uh, William Manchester, writing about it in his book, The Glory and the Dream, says that there was such a great wall of brine that stuck the beach between uh, Babylon and Pachogi, uh, New York. I think that's how you say it. Don't hold me to it if you're from there. It's so mighty was the power of that first storm wave that the impact registered on seismographs in Sitka, Alaska. While the spray carried northward at well over 100 miles an hour, actually whitened and coated windows, windows in Vermont. This storm wave comes rolling in. A 40-foot wave approached, 
People that were, that were able to live through it said the only way, once they heard that it was coming, that they were able to get away, was they got into cars immediately and they drove not under 50 miles an hour on all the roads. Anyone who got slowed down was swallowed up by the waves. Among one of the most striking stories, which came later, was a man from Manchester. It was uh, the experience of one Long Islander who had bought a barometer a few days earlier in a New York store. It arrived in the Morning Post, September 21st, and to his annoyance, the needle pointed below 29, where the dial read, hurricanes and tornadoes coming. He shook it, banged it against the wall, beat it on the table, the needle wouldn't budge. Indignant that it was reading that a tornado was coming, he drove to the post office and mailed it back. While he was gone, his house blew away. (laughs) That's the way that we often are. If we can't cope with the forecast, we blame the barometer. Matt and I were talking about this passage and the importance of warning, and especially the importance of warning at this time of year. I'm not wanting just to go heavy. I'm not wanting just to leave you in this place. But I do want you to hear the warning as it's intended. It is possible for you to be so captivated in secret sin, in things that you should not be doing, that you ruin God's intention for your life. It is possible for you as a saved man to be involved in sin and lose your family, not be able to come back into right relationship with them, Even though you're forgiven by God and you're guaranteed heaven, you may lose that relationship for the rest of your days. That's the warning that's here. We had a pastor when we were doing the steps ministry, uh, teaching to smaller churches, who had called us and he said that he was going crazy. He was overwhelmed by ministry. That was the story that he had shared. So our church had taken up a collection, many of you know this, paid for him to go and get checked in, actually go get visited by somebody that was a part of a clinic to help him with mental health and wellness. When he gets to that location, it's discovered that actually what has been going on is he's been having an affair. That person he was having an affair with followed him from Hawaii. Ultimately, that relationship cost him his relationship with his family, cost him his ministry, cost him plan A. When he gets his head right and he realizes he is living in a way that is contrary to God's best and it's destroying his life, he repents and he goes back, but he tried to force his way back into that church. He got a hotel near the church, was intending to try and force his way back in to take over at that location. We were called by his family one morning where they found him at the hotel and he had passed away. Suddenly, they believed by the hand of God. That's an intense storyline. But let me share this with you right now. There are some of you in the room right now today, and we've just been doing Bible stories. We share at this time of year about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he has a real plan for your life that not only is forgiveness, but it will change the shape and trajectory of who you are. He wants your very best. He wants blessing in your home. And he wants the peace that you experience on earth to be real, not manufactured. 
But we fake it. We pretend the peace is real. We try to purchase it or drink it or imbibe it in some other way. You can't do that. He is begging you in this passage, do not continue with anything that will destroy your life and force you to live plan B. Don't bring a scar on your life that it will be impossible to step away from. And some of you right now have that choice. You have that choice to step away, to follow the Lord before it's too late. But this is the other thing when he says, I'm convinced of better things of you. Do you know that we still have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses? And the whole point of the passage is if you have been touched, Caleb and Joshua are mentioned in that storyline as having lives that were impacted by the sin of others. Some of you in the room did not make the decisions that destroyed your family, but you're still living with consequences nonetheless. You have a high priest who can sympathize with your weakness and wants to walk with you through that hardship. He will see you safely through, not only to eternity, but he'll see you through the holidays and be near. Amen? Christ is pleading with you in this passage, stay faithful. If you are doing something right now and you just say, man, I really just need to pray about this, get it off my chest and confess it, we'd love to pray with you at the end of the service. If you are here and your life has been impacted negatively by somebody else's choices and you're saying, I just need to be able to forgive them, we would love to be able to pray with you. If you are here and you have been waffling back and forth, Let me plead with you, follow Christ today. It says today, if you hear his voice, listen. Let's make sure that we follow that call, amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to use this call. Uh, An intense passage uh, this Christmas season. Father, for sure, not an easy message, but nonetheless, one where we are called to listen to what the author has intended. It says here in this passage that he's convinced because of the things that have gone on in our life that we have all of the tools, we have all of the ability to follow the Lord. The plea is don't become lazy and blow this warning off. Father, I pray that you would help every single one of us to be thoughtful about the life that we are living to chase strong after you. We pray that you'd fill us with an energy and a passion to run to you and ask for forgiveness, to run to our brothers and sisters, our family members, and ask for forgiveness. We pray, Father, also that you would help us to look around in an auditorium full of people, believers, and walk with somebody whose head is hanging low or who is filled with concern to remind them that you are a good God That this passage isn't about losing salvation. It's about losing plan A. There are some who are walking in hardship today who are still loved by you. Help us to remind them of that. Father, help us to walk out encouraged, but also challenged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This be a benediction over your life. My friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord 
and Savior. My friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to God be the glory now and forever now and forever amen to god be the glory now and forever now and forever amen i pray today as we learn from one Another, oh, may we glorify Him. If the Lord should bring us back together, may we be in His arms till then. To God be the glory, but now and forever. Now and forever, amen. And to God will be the glory. Now and forever, now and forever, amen. My friends, may you grow in grace. In the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, my friends, may you grow in grace. And in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, may that be so, right? Pastor Justin did say we were going to have some of our staff up, yeah an easy little passage we look through today, right? Pastor Justin did say, we're going to have some of our staff and pastors up here. We'd love to be able to pray with you for whatever it might be. You know, if you want to be set free for something, we would love to be able to pray with you. For the rest of you, thanks so much for being here today. Go live for him. You're dismissed.